Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good morning. Good. All right. Well, we're going to finish up chapter 8 today. Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to deal with these final verses. And uh, as I studied, uh, I realized chapter 8 concludes another section in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Unlike some chapter breaks that we see, uh, this one seems to be very well-fitted, uh, at least in my opinion. The transition that follows from chapter 8 to chapter 9 is uh, very logical. Uh, it almost makes me wonder if Paul wasn't writing and uh, got late one night and he puts his pen down at the end of chapter 8 and then gets a good night's rest and then picks it back up again the next morning for chapter 9 because the, there's definitely a, a transition in theme. Whatever the case, today we're going to consider these final eight verses. And we're going to look at Paul's summation of the argument that began in chapter 3 and verse 21. The argument began with this thought. God's righteousness comes through faith. And since he began that argument in chapter 3 and verse 21, he's built upon it layer upon layer. And now he brings it to a, 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 a conclusion. For me, the, Paul, uh, the summation that Paul gives puts me in mind of uh, an attorney that might be giving his final closing argument at the end of a big case. He uses uh, syllogism and some other logical devices throughout the close, but he, he just uses eight simple verses to bring the, the, the summation to a close and to, re to reiterate the entire case. So let's begin by reading those eight verses. We'll be in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for, for us all, how shall he not uh, with him uh, also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the title of the lesson this morning is Five Questions and a Conclusion. And as we just read, Paul presents five different questions. Uh, they're rhetorical questions. And then he, uh, he brings the conclusion uh, at, this, uh, at the end of them with this long list of things that uh, he, he names. Uh, it's an all-encompassing list. And then and says, there, you know, there's no way that we can be separated from the love of Christ as believers. So let's take again a look again at verse 31, and we'll, we'll dive into the first of these rhetorical questions. 
And he, and he says, what shall we say to these things? Now, to be honest, when I started studying and preparing for the outline, uh, I had to ask my question, what things is he talking about? Is he talking about the things he's about to cover, or is he talking about the things that he uh, had previously covered? And I, I came to the, the deciding conclusion, or the, the, uh, I decided, I think he's talking about the things he's already been talking about since chapter 3 and verse 21. And so if we, if we took a brief look backwards at what we've already uh, covered in those, those chapters, we come uh, across a few points that he makes in his argument. First of all, in chapter 3, he talks about faith in God reveals his righteousness in us. That's how he begins his whole argument, how he begins laying this out. It occurred to me also as I'm studying this, how frustrating it must have been to be a Pharisee back in this day. I mean, they had to deal with Jesus, who is always just stressing them out and confounding them. Y'all smile a little bit, okay? <laughs> this is supposed to be fun. <laughs> but but they, the Pharisees, essentially, they had to deal with Jesus. They finally get rid of him through the death, burial, resurrection, and then the ascension. And, and what a relief they must, they must have thought, you know. Finally, he's gone. They tried to kill him again and again and again. They couldn't get it done. They organized themselves. They just couldn't destroy him. But finally, he goes away on his own. And what a relief that must have been if you're a Pharisee living in that day. But little did they know the Holy Spirit was going to come and empower 13 apostles to start changing the world. <laughs> that had to be terribly frustrating. And one of the things, if you read through the book of Acts, it says that they were frustrated because Paul would prove that Jesus was the Messiah. It, it didn't say that he would try to prove, but in a couple of places it says that Paul would go into the temple and prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And of course, this just frustrated them to no end. It's why they want to destroy the apostles as well. And here we see this is what Paul's doing in his letter to the Romans. He's, he's proving, he's laying out this case. And of course, Paul, before his conversion, what, what did he do for a living? What was his title? I didn't hear. Well, he did do that to earn money, but before he did that, what was, when he was Saul before Paul? He's a Pharisee. Very good. That's exactly right. Paul himself was a Pharisee. And so he was a studier of the law. He, apparently, he was a good Pharisee. He was one of their, their, their star pupils. Uh, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of their top teachers. Uh, he was given responsibilities to destroy the church. And so Paul's very good with the law and this, this legal argument, this, this laying things out uh, step by step and bit, bit by bit and building a case. Uh, that's one of the things that fascinates me, uh, not just on TV shows, but in the real world to go and listen to a really good attorney make a case. Because they build a case uh, layer upon layer, truth upon truth, uh, they bring evidence uh, and the evidence has to be that there's certain qualifying standards for something to be real evidence. And, and Paul is very good at this. And, and so that's what he's doing here. And we're, so when it begins and it says, what shall we say to these things? It's talking about these things that Paul has already built a case for, uh, built his case upon. 
And the first, as I said, is faith in God reveals his righteousness in us. Next, the promises of God are delivered through faith. He covered in that in uh, the bulk of chapter 4. Uh, thirdly, Christ died in our, in our place to bring new life. And that's a great piece of evidence. Because who in this day could deny that Christ had died and risen again? Nobody. Why? That's not rhetorical. Why could they not deny it? Yeah, you're right, because the witnesses are still... And how many witnesses? Over 500. Over 500. Probably thousands. And, and then and there's just no way that anybody could deny this truth in that day. Now, people try to do it today, but in that day, nobody could deny the truth. And by the way, would not the gospel have gone away by now if that were a lie? Certainly it would. Certainly it would, and yet the gospel remains. And so again, Paul builds his case uh, upon these truths. Fourthly, we are therefore freed from the law's penalty. That's in chapter 7. Uh, fifthly, we are free from indwelling sin, and we are sons and daughters. And those are in chapter 8, we found. So he's, he's saying, uh, what, what do we say to these things? In other words, what conclusions do we bring? Uh, church at Rome. What, since we've covered these things, we know these things to be true, what do we conclude? What do we do with it? By the way, that's a great question to ask yourself when you do Bible study. When you come to church and you listen to a sermon or you come to this class and you, and you listen uh, to me try to expound upon the scriptures, and as we read the scriptures, uh, a great question to ask yourself, okay, fine, now what do I do with it? How do I apply that to my life? How do I take that and regurgitate it to the world? Uh, regardless of what the world does with it, that's not your responsibility. And that's the question that Paul is asking. And so he, he begins uh, uh, with these, these questions, and he continues in the second part of chapter, or verse 31, and he, and he says, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the, the if is not, it's not, you know, maybe God's for us, but it, it's really since God is for us. Since God is for us. Now, why does he use the word us? Who's he talking to? The believers. Very good. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you can shout it right out. I'm not playing, I'm not playing gotcha. It's not true questions. <laughs> right? So it, it is that Paul... Paul uh, associates himself with this church at Rome, and so they are the believers. That's who the epistle is to. Since God is for us, who can be, give, can be against us? And he, you can kind of build a, a simple little syllogism here. God defends and provides for those that he loves. Can we agree to that? Does God defend and provide for us as believers? He does for me, certainly. And, and so then because God... Uh, God's love for us, uh, he sacrificed his own son on our behalf. See, he gives this in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So we see these thoughts, and then he brings it to this conclusion. Therefore, God defends and provides for us. If God can be... Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand against us? 
And the answer is obvious. Who is that? Who can really stand against God? Nobody. Nobody. And see, that's the key. It's not, it's the us takes on this new meaning because it's not just Paul and the believers at Rome and the believers in this room, but now it includes God because we're a part of Him, see? And so he builds this, this syllogism to uh, right from the very beginning here to point this out that, it, by the way, and that this is why he concludes at the end with we're more than conquerors because we get to be a part of this group. So again, the, the, he builds a, a, the argument upon argument and begins to bring it to this summation uh, that began way back in chapter 3 and bring this assurance to the church at Rome. Now, we read that this morning, and it's uh, almost more entertaining than it is comforting. And, and I'm not being critical of you or of me. That's just how it is. Why is that? Any of you feel threatened this morning? Anybody worried that somebody's going to kick the doors down and drag us away? No. None of us are. What about the church in Rome? Yeah. In school, you ever, you ever remember hearing about the catacombs? The great arenas where they, they drug Christians in? Did, did y'all ever watch the movie Gladiator, that Russell Crowe film? Great movie, out of the way. But if you rent the DVD, and if you get certain DVDs, there's a scene at the end. Renting DVD. Well, okay, I know. <laughs> See, in my, in my head, that sounded modern. <laughs> I didn't say VHS. All right, however you watch this movie, there's a scene that they cut, and I've seen it one or two times on DVD, Matt. And the scene is this. It had nothing to do with gladiators. They drug in a group of Christians, one of which was an older gentleman, a young boy. There was a whole group of them, but, but the, the young boy clung to the older gentleman who stood there and held him and began to pray as they released the lions. Now, see, we gasp at that, but that was commonplace. That was entertainment. That was their Saturday afternoon football game. And they were there because they were believers. These people that Paul is writing this letter to. Does that give a different emphasis to why Paul is being so careful to lay out this argument that we take for granted? And by the way, don't feel guilty that I said that you take it for granted because we're comfortable. We live in this wonderful nation. We're allowed to worship and, and freely worship. And people have died and, and fought and, and voted for those rights. See? So, so don't feel guilty about that. I'm glad that we have that. I'm glad that we're not in the catacombs. But this is what it meant to the church in Rome. This was so important for them to understand that in the midst of that suffering, and at the, in the midst of those threats, they were still more than conquerors. Who could be against them since God was on their side? There's a separation there between the spiritual and the physical. 
And not all died that way. Obviously, some lived to tell uh, the truths and, and to, to grow the church and to expand. But many did give their lives because they would not recant. They would not give up the name of Christ. And this brings us to verse 33. Who shall bring a charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. I, I wanted to really give a, a really brilliant legal argument here, but I, I just don't have that mind or that experience. But I do know this, that an accuser going into court needs to have credentials, a, a criminal court, not a civil court. They, they need to have some uh, authority to be there and, and to uh, support an arrest and to make an accusation before a judge and jury uh, they need to know the law. They need to be the credentials. Typically, it's our district attorneys and, and those who work for the district attorney. And an accuser needs also to bring evidence. They need to be able to not just come in and accuse. Uh, it can't be hearsay. It, it can't just be uh, supposition, but it needs to be hard evidence that shows that the, the uh, violator, the criminal, the accused had uh, opportunity that they had motive, and that they had means. They had to build evidence for all three of those usually to bring, uh, uh, to bring a, a, a guilty verdict. And there's only one accuser that's ever mentioned in Scripture, and that's in Revelation chapter 12. Turn in your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Remember the question here, the third question, who shall bring a charge to God's elect. And I want to share these 12 verses with you. I'm running out of time, but I'm going to do it anyway. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the, uh, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried in a labor, uh, cried out in labor, and in pain to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour the, her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in, in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and the archangels fought, in, uh, fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the dragon's place was removed from heaven. Verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, the accuser of our brethren, he accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. We'll stop right there. There's the accuser. 
The only accuser ever named is Satan, and he's cast down, and has he defeated? By the blood of the Lamb. That's exactly right. Are you a believer in Christ today? Yes. If you are, then the blood's been applied. And though I give Satan plenty to work with, I give him all kinds of evidence, means, motive, opportunity, intent. Yet he brings that evidence. He can try to bring that evidence, but one, he no longer has authority. He, no longer, he doesn't have a place in the court. But when he tries that, who's sitting there by the judge? Jesus. And what does he say? Nope. Already paid for, Father. Already paid for. No guilt. So if there's any accusation to be made, it's by those that are on the throne. But those will never be made against a believer where the blood has been applied. See? And, and so he continues now to the, his fourth point in verse 34. All right. So we took care of the accuser, but who can condemn? Verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So to condemn requires authority of the presiding court. Well, who's, who has the authority there? Who's, pictured, who's always pictured as the supreme authority in Scripture? God the Father. Right Now, I know they're Trinity. I know they're, they're co-equal. They're God, three in one. I understand that. But for our sakes, probably it, it's written this way, but God the Father is always pictured as that as supreme authority. Whose will did Christ follow on the earth? Not my will, but thine be done. God the Father, right? Okay? So we're, we're biblical. Everybody with me? Christ died and arose to pay the debt that we owed and Christ sits on the throne making intercession for, uh, for us with the Father. So who's going to condemn us? So the accuser has no place and no grounds to stand upon. And the one that can condemn is there uh, being, and we're having intercession made on our behalf by the Son. So we can't be accused and we can't be condemned. So Paul says because of all those things, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? See, he, he gives these, these wonderful lists. He talks about tribulation. Can that do it? No. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? No. None of those things. How about another ice age? How about global warming? How about a hole in the ozone, climate change, bird flu, African killer bees, Zinca mosquitoes, COVID, political corruption, any of those things going to separate you? Then calm down. <laughs> huh? Relax. And get busy for what matters. Love Jesus and tell the world about him. The end. That's it. And I'm not telling you, this is kind of what I preached on last week in, in Level Pebble, Flat Rock, Alabama. 
I'm not telling you your trouble's going to go away. There's going to be trouble. It's not leaving. It's going to be here. And heaven forbid it that we might end up in the catacombs or before the lines. But it doesn't change this list. That's not going to change. Eternity is still our destiny. Heaven is our home. That is where our citizenship lies. So relax. And then get busy with the Great Commission. How many Great Commissions did Jesus give? One. Again, whole group. Not a trick question. You can answer. I love you. Hey, one great, one, when Jesus was going away, he said, this is it. Don't do A, B, and C. Just do A. One great commission. Go into all the world and teach, preach the gospel. Making disciples. That's it. That's what you are supposed to be about. And everything else that you need to do to work, to support your family, it, it all should point towards the great commission. The great commission should be a part of it. You should tell your workmates about Christ. You should tell your neighbors about Christ. You should tell your enemies about Christ. It doesn't change. In fact, I, I think he does that so you can get better at it. <laughs> you know, practice makes perfect. But see, that list wasn't enough. Paul goes on and he gives another list. This is one of the greatest lists in the Bible. In, in verses 37 through 39. And let's read it again just because it's fun. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. By the way, that's another one of those verses that we love to hear quoted and it gets used out of context a lot. Let, are let, you back in Romans? I am. I'm in Romans chapter 8 verse 37. Okay. There you go. And, and so he, he writes this to the church at Rome and these are the same people that, that will if not while he's writing this letter, that will soon be slaughtered. You know, the ones that are running for their lives and hiding and trying to survive, these are the ones that he said, you're more than conquerors. He, he says, yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, here's why. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have trouble with eternal security, you need to memorize those verses. Can anybody think of anything that doesn't fall within the scope of that list? I can't. Can any Christian believe these verses and fail to trust the security that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't think so. We thank the Lord for these verses. We thank the, that, that Paul wrote them down and he brings his argument to this logical conclusion because that gives me great security. And here's the thing. I fall within this list. I can't even separate myself from the love of Christ. You know, in, in, in any other situation, I might be able to break a bond, but not here. Because God loves me that much that I have the security as a believer in these verses. 
And that's where we conclude. When we pick back up, uh, next lesson is chapter 9, and we're going to begin to talk about Israel's rejection of Christ. I love you. Get out of here. We'll see you next time.